So we are glad that you're here, and we are still navigating where everyone is, whether they're here um, in person or online, and um, we're glad you, you are joining us either way. Uh, we had a good event last night at our house with some of our young families who, uh, it's kind of hard when you don't have an, an ongoing children's ministry to bring some of your young kids. We recognize that, so a lot are still staying home, but we had a, a fun time last night with them, and I understand, uh, uh, Jeremy, was that, was that the first cake you made from scratch or from uh, a mix? Okay, well, so, so this is what I heard after. I didn't know this at the time, but so we, we had this event, and Brittany uh, texted Deidre and said, what can I bring? And she said, well, why don't you bring a dessert? So those of you who don't know Brittany and Jeremy, Brittany is a caterer and a baker and fixes all kinds of great desserts and stuff. And so, but unbeknownst to us, she was at a conference over the weekend, so she, Deidre said, well, why don't you just bring a dessert? And uh, and so she texted Jeremy, hey, you better make a dessert. I won't be home in time. And the true story or not true story, Jeremy, you Googled how to make a cake to taste like a bakery cake. Okay, okay. I listened to him. I've done it before. I heard that you Googled it, and but it was it was amazing. You need a list of direct, you're, well, that's an engineer for you. Give me a list of directions, I'll make it work. So anyways, we had a good time with them. We are looking forward, if you are a college uh, student or a high school graduate, uh, we have several, um, uh, belt packs falling apart, we have s- uh, several new high school graduates, and uh, so we're going to be getting together, I think Scott's already mentioned this, but we're going to be getting together in two weeks at our house to just talk about what does it look like to go through life as a college student. That's going to be November 8th at 5.30 at our house. Um, we'll send out an email about that, and we would love for you to come and be a part. If you've got friends that you think would like to come, um, we'll do that too. And we'll not only just enjoy spending some time together, but we'll also talk about where do we go and what, what it will be helpful for you. So we're looking forward to that and are starting to have some initial conversations um, about what would it look like to start moving in the direction of small groups again, um, whether that would be back on Zoom, um, which we all kind of burned out on early on in the pandemic, or whether we are going to try to do something online. So we are having some of those initial conversations about what that would look like, who's comfortable with what, and we're also just watching, continuing to watch, like everyone else, what's going on during cold and flu season, because we want to uh, not expose anyone needlessly to something. So anyways, lots of things that we're kind of transitioning around. We're still somewhat trying to figure out what does it look like to continue to do this thing, um, not knowing when COVID is not going to be on our radar and causing all kinds of schedule changes and uh, distancing issues. So uh, we're still working through that. And one of the reasons we're doing this series on called Afterlife uh, is because we, if we come out of this pandemic with the mindset that we need to get back to life exactly the way it was before the pandemic, we miss an opportunity to recognize the world has changed. Now, the new normal um, language that we use, some of that is true. There are some things that have changed and perhaps forever have changed. But let's be honest, some of those things have not yet changed. Or they're changing for now, and they will change back. Like we are, we are a very elastic people. We snap right back to our preferred way of living 
um, as quickly as we possibly can. But this has been such an interruption, not only to our lives and to our mindsets, but also to many industries and jobs, that the way we function moving forward is going to be changed. Now, what's interesting about this, if you'll remember when we did a series called Protestant, what's interesting about Protestant um, is that we noticed a, a church historian who passed away not too long ago. Her name was Phyllis Tickle, real name, Phyllis Tickle, um, popularized, although I don't think she was the first to quote it, popularized the phrase um, or the quote that the church, every 500 years, the church throws a yard sale. And they kind of throw out the old things that are no longer meaningful, and they kind of take on what is meaningful now. Now, some of those experiences, this is not that we throw out the gospel or change the gospel, but, but basically 350 years after Jesus died and went to heaven, that's when Constantine not only legalized Christianity in the civilized world, but rewarded those within government and public life who publicly proclaimed to be Christian, ending a very difficult time of persecution for Christianity. That was 350 years after the death of Christ and resurrection. And then another 500, actually 700 years later, we have a great schism um, in the Catholic Church between the um, Eastern and Western churches. 500 years after that, we have the Protestant Reformation where uh, Martin Luther King nails 95 theses on the, the church door in Wittenberg and declares, we have gone off the rails on what it looks like to be the church. And here we are, <laughs> roughly 500 years later, going through a pandemic. Things are going to change. Things have changed. The point of the Afterlife series is not maybe the point of some you have heard in the past, um, where it's, it's a highly gospel-centered um, presentation to get you to become a Christian, although I hope it does that. Um, Deidre and I, we have many stories growing up at kind of the tail end of a time where we used to call a series of, of sermons, Turn or Burn. Did anybody else grow up under the uh, mentality of the Turn or Burn series uh, or sermon that basically said, turn to Jesus or burn forever in hell? You know, like, oh, I not much of a choice there, is there? So uh, that's, not what, that's not what we're doing here. But there are some beliefs, theologies, and doctrines that we have to be settled on now. As other things change, these things don't change. And But there have been over time, over the years, over the decades, over the last 2,000 and sometimes longer, there has been a change in the understanding of these things. It is important for us to go back to the Bible and say, what does the Bible actually say? Last week we talked about eternal life. What does the Bible actually say about eternal life? Life And one of the things that we all assume because we hear it is that when we die, we are going to go to heaven if we are Christians. But interestingly, the Bible never says you will go to heaven. The Bible says things like you are a citizen of heaven. But one of the things we looked at, and we'll, talk, we'll go a little deeper next week because next week we are talking about heaven. One of the things that we looked at is the reality that in Revelation, John says what he, the vision that he had was that actually heaven was coming down to earth not the other way around. And we have this expectation that the earth is going to be absolutely destroyed and all that's going to be left is heaven or hell. And that's going to be one of our eternal existences. And, and our understanding of those eternal existences is, is really sometimes based more on art and literature than it is based on the Bible. And so that we're going to hit that heavily today with the issue of hell. Now, 
Our interim children's minister, I think, is threatening to quit if I talk as long as I did last week. That's my wife. And uh, and so I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can. She said, that was way too long, Mark. That was way too long. Now, you all say that to me, but Deidre says that stuff to me. Just so you know, if you're sitting there thinking, is, is anyone telling him this? Yes, someone is telling me this. And Malia, I just want you to know, I don't want to throw her under the bus or anything, but Malia, my six-year-old, uh, entered today telling me that um, I was boring. So if you, any one of you are wondering, is anyone telling Mark this? Just know, yes, they are telling me this. Woo, what a joy to be a pastor. All right, so... Man, all right. So we talked about what is eternal life last week. We're talking about hell this week. And one of the presuppositions I'm going to give you is that your understanding of hell is based less on the Bible than it is on popular culture. And so what we need to do is we need to find out what does the Bible say. Now, in order to enter enter into this conversation, it is important that we still remember what eternal life is, and I'm not going to rehash last week. You can go back online and you can watch last week's. It was, it was uh, uh, don't ask Malia this. I thought it was a good sermon. Malia did not. I thought it was good, though. So go back and watch that. And uh, we ended kind of with this, John 17, 1 through 3. We went to the source. What does Jesus say eternal life is? John 17, 1 through 3 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Like, we should really clue in right here. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus, in a nutshell, and I love how Jesus does this. Like he doesn't, he says, I, I'm not doing away with the law, even though at times we we want to do away with the law. He says, I'm not doing away with it, but but really the law looks like loving God and loving people. I, he so simplifies things into these big picture ideas, and that's what he's doing with eternal life. Not saying that this encompasses all of eternal life, but yet he is saying at its core, at its essence, eternal life is knowing God. That is what eternal life is. Now, I'm just going to hit a number of topics through today. This is going to be a bit of a fire hose, so you can go back and watch this uh, if you want to follow along on version. Not all, but most of these notes are on version. If you want to follow along, you can always check those later, and you can always save some notes or go back and read those at your leisure. So one of the things we have to begin with is we have to uncover our presuppositions about hell. Because if we're honest, hell has been one of the driving forces behind pushing the gospel for the last many decades. And by the end of this, what I'm going to basically say to you is this is the wrong way to approach the gospel for a number of reasons. It is not that hell doesn't exist. This is the wrong way to approach talking about finding the pearl of great price or the treasure beyond of great value that will sell anything to get hell cheapens the gospel when that is our primary presupposition of the gospel and i'll show that to you again in just a minute some of the presupposition we have to uncover is that we recognize that jesus is the only person actually used the word hell in the new testament Nobody else talks about it but Jesus. That makes it very important what Jesus says about it. Now, depending on your translation, some of your translations have many more references to hell than are actually translated in really more kind of integrity-based translations of Scripture. 
where hell is, is, is often quoted and translated in context, but that's not actually the language that they were using. There's only four words in all of Scripture that can even be used for hell. In the New Testament, there are only 14 references to hell. There are 644 references to heaven. And as we mentioned last week, there are over 2,000 uh, mentions of poverty in the New Testament, which is important because in the New Testament, much emphasis is often demonstrated by repetition. So when you say the same thing over, parents, you know what I mean, right? Like when you're saying the same thing over and over and over to your kids, like this is important, I need you to get this. What's interesting is that heaven's mentioned 644 times, hell is mentioned 14, and of those 14 times, 13 of those times, the exact same word is used to describe hell, which is actually a literal geographic place on earth called Gehenna. Gehenna literally means the Valley of Hinnon, which is an area right outside Jerusalem, and that is a very real physical place in which some very, really bad things happened. It also became kind of the community trash dump where you would burn trash, and even a place where some of the kings of Judah, when we had the split northern and southern kingdom, in which the the kings of Judah would sacrifice children to Moloch because they had become pagan kings. It was a place uh, where fire was continually burning. If you've ever taken anything to the dump, you know that when you pull in, it is like, oh my goodness, this is really bad. I, you don't want, you want to get out of there as soon as you can. It is a place where you would not want to build your house on the way to the dump, which is what Gehenna really is. Now, one of the things we have to uncover when we talk about hell, and the reason that we have the problem and we, and we even have to have this conversation is because we constantly struggle to take imagery within Scripture and apply a literal meaning to things that were not always meant to be interpreted literally, but figuratively. Now, some things we want to call figurative are literal, but there are many things, especially around hell and the end times, that are incredibly figurative and they are not to be taken literally. For example, is there real, are there really beasts flying around in heaven with multiple eyes and wings and things? Maybe, but maybe not. The point of the revelation of John was not that this is a snapshot, a portrait that we are supposed to see and it is exactly what it is. It's very symbolic. So we have to understand the symbolism behind the things that are being talked about. So as we begin to understand this, 13 of the 14 mentioned in the New Testament, all 14 by Jesus, 13 of the 14 are about this one place, this one dump in Jerusalem. I don't think we're going to spend our eternal life if we've rejected Christ on the outskirts of the suburbs of Jerusalem. It's figurative. More on that when we come to it. A lot of the images that we have, which is if we were to say, hey, if we could project your mind's eye, like the, how you see something, we could just project it out of your head of hell. Like for some, of the, some of those images might be somebody, you know, chained to a, to a cross or nailed to a, a, in a cave in a stone, uh, I guess a stone wall, and they're just perpetually burning or hurting or somebody's whipping them, or it's just like a torture chamber forever. That's many of our images, but those images don't come from the Bible. Those images, you, you, could, you could somehow construe that those images are coming from some places in Scripture, but none of them talk about hell really that way. But two of our early works that have painted the most clear picture that matches what most of our minds eyes see when we think about hell are Milton's Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno. Let me read this from John Milton, Paradise Lost, said this. Now the thought 
both of lost happiness and lasting pain, torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate at once as far as angels can he views, the dismal situation waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace flamed. Yet from those flames, no light but rather darkness visible, which is an interesting image, visible darkness served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades where peace and rest can never dwell. Hope never comes, that comes to all, but torture without end still urges and a fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. Now does that not sound like a lot of our images of what hell is like? In Dante's Inferno, Dante describes this expression in hell like this. There is no greater sorrow than to recall our times of joy and wretchedness. As if you will perpetually remember the good times and there will never be another good time again. Now these are images that we have. They are not necessarily false images symbolically. Literally, we're really pushing too far when we understand hell in this way, and we're giving hell too much power in influencing people than it was ever intended to have. I want you to understand hell itself was not originally created for humanity. We read this in Matthew 25 and give you a bunch of scripture today. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who was hell created for? The devil and his angels. Angels, which is now serving double duty, kind of like a government-run prison system, right? Serving double duty now. I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, these are hard words. And as a pastor, when I meet somebody for the first time, one of the things I don't want to do is to walk in and say, Hi, my name is Mark. I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. Are you going to be tortured in a perpetual hell for the rest of your life? Or would you like to know about Jesus too? You know, I don't do that. (laughs) There's a reason that we don't talk about hell much in the church anymore. And it does us a disservice when we don't. But we need to talk about it correctly. Not with all the fanfare that makes a good movie, but with what is true and what is real and what is right. Now, because hell is such an offensive idea for us, we've come up with a number of ways, and these are growing in popularity, a number of ways that we kind of dismiss hell's not that bad. I I, I am not in any way pushing to the place to say that hell is not that bad. Hell is bad. But why is it bad? That's the question I really want us to get to. So some of the ways that people are trying to address hell today is they simply say, well, there is no eternal punishment. Instead, hell is figurative and circumstantial. In other words, you can create your own hell. Right? We all know that's true. We can make life miserable. It may not reach the depths of what hell truly is, but we can see sometimes our choices put us in a bad spot. You know? 
Got I watched um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou again. Might have some of those references this week. Um, in a tight spot is one of my favorite quotes from Oh Brother Where Art Thou. You might be in a tight spot, but it doesn't mean it's going to reach the level of hell. But that's one of the ways we do it. It's figurative and circumstantial. A, a growing, growing, growing response to hell that many popular um, writers are using is, is universalism. And universalism is this. All are saved, even if you reject Jesus. There is no hell. Jesus conquered hell, destroyed hell. There is no hell. God loves everybody. God gets what he wants in the end. Perhaps the most um, notable um, persons that are pushing this view or person is probably Rob Bell, who I've been a big fan over the years, but has gone into some directions that I, I don't follow. But this idea of universalism, God loves everybody. God would not allow anyone to be punished like this, which you have to ignore a whole lot of the Bible to fall into this mentality. Namely, two, Psalms 1, 1 through 6, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all what that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous by the way of the wicked will perish. There seems to be a rejection of the idea of universalism here. That's the Old Testament, some might say. Jesus could have changed that. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, God is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is going to return to us from heaven. The new Jerusalem is going to come out of the heavens. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are the words of Jesus, which it is very difficult to embrace a universalist mentality with these words directly from the mouth of Jesus. A third way that people are trying to kind of do away with this, which is, is, is kind of less popular. The next two are less popular, but also growing and, and because we just cannot believe that there is, are, is any real um, accountability for our actions in the, in the world. We continually move to a place of life where we have, there are no repercussions for our bad actions. The verse is called conditionalism. And the conditionalism is this strange idea that is similar to the last, which is the soul is mortal. Like it, your, your soul is, is, is mortal now. It's never been meant to be immortal, which has been a historical tenet of the faith of Christianity, that our soul is meant to be immortal. Conditionalism says, no, your soul is mortal, but if you believe in Jesus and you live the right way, then God will grant you immortality. But if you don't, then you'll just die and be done and you'll be gone. There'll just be no hell. I mean, you just won't exist anymore. And the last growing view is similar except its understanding of the soul is different, and that's annihilationism. Annihilationism says the soul is immortal, but God in his grace, if you re choose to reject him and would experience a, a, an eternal um, time of torture, you'll just, he'll just wipe you out. He'll just kill your soul right there. So either you go to heaven or your soul still dies. 
The difference between conditionalism and annihilationism is conditionalism says your soul is mortal and you're granted immortality. Annihilationism says your soul is immortal and God grants you mortality to save you from that ongoing punishment. None of these are biblical concepts. But they feel good. And they make us look more passionate. And they make, more importantly, God look more compassionate. Which is one of the problems with our understanding of heaven and hell. Is how we view God in all of this. So here's what I want to do for the bulk of our stuff. And that is, what does Jesus actually say about hell? feels like that Jesus' words would be important here. And what does he actually say? And what he actually says is very important when we really dig down and we look. He says in Matthew 5.29, talking about both our body and our soul, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the members of your whole body than be, excuse me, one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In other words, hell's not a good place. Most of us don't read this verse literally because we still have both of our eyes. I always think that's funny. When we talk about the Bible is should be taken literally by people that have two eyes. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, which again pushes sort of that immortality of the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, so maybe the soul can be destroyed. The problem is, is when we go back and we begin to dig down into the language in which this is written, the word for destroy does not actually mean to annihilate or to kill. That's not actually what this word destroy means. In fact, it is often translated in another place that we see throughout the New Testament as the word lost. So whenever we have the parable of the lost son, same word as this word destroy. The parable of the lost coin, same word, this word, destroy. The lost sheep, the same word, the word, destroy. Rather, fear him who can, perhaps a better reading would be, fear him who can cause your soul and body to be lost. But yet when we have that, we encounter the same word in all the other teachings of Jesus. He's basically saying someone who does not know God. It's interesting, and it's exactly what Jesus said that eternal life was. Let's keep going. I don't think that what he's saying in Mark in Matthew 10, 28, um, that, that, that the one or that Satan could, could kill your soul and your body in hell. He, he is not talking about death here. I want, you to, I want you to understand that because that's important here in just a minute. Mark 9, 43 through 48 also talking about your body and your soul, says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire where Milton and Dante get their idea that we're going to burn in perpetual fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Is this literal or is this figurative? I find it difficult to believe, knowing my own history, that anyone could enter into eternal life with two eyes, two hands, or two feet. 
I may be alone in that. I just know myself. Matthew 13, 41 says, The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what is hell? Seems like a reasonable question after all these things that I've just read and said to you. In order to kind of unpack that, one of the important places, one of the important verses that kind of paint the uh, environment for everything else is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This is Paul speaking, but saying, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a time when every person who either accepts or rejects Jesus will simultaneously and together recognize Jesus is who he said he was. That time is coming. Now we can read this in a number of ways. One way we can read this is everyone's going to recognize it and be happy about it. But not everyone who kneels is happy about kneeling. And I think that's an important designation for us to make. But what Paul is saying is is that at some point, every person who has ever taken breath in this world will come to a place of recognizing Jesus for who he is, for what he has said, and for what he has promised. We will recognize the truth of Jesus, in which much in our culture seeks to deny the truth of Jesus. At some point, everyone's going to recognize. But what if some are not happy that that is the case? Could you imagine being in the presence of God and recognizing his beauty and his grace and his love and his mercy and not having an opportunity to actually have a relationship with him? Now, some of you guys in school, could you imagine, you know, if you're a guy and there's this girl, I mean, she is nice to look at. I like to get to know her. Or other way around. Girls, you see a guy, I like him. I wish he would uh, make a move here. And you see this person that you just, you kind of fall in love with. And, oh, you just think about him all the time. But you're too afraid to go talk to him. And to perpetually live in a space where you're in love with somebody that you can't actually ever have a relationship with. Now, I don't want to diminish God and to say it's that same type of relationship. We could do a talk about love and how love is, has many different types of expressions. Could you imagine a time, perhaps once the time for choice has passed, that you actually see that Jesus was right, Jesus was true, you know, some of the parables I like to, to reference, uh, I think, are just so crucial to understanding the gospel as it truly is, and that is the pearl of great price and the treasure that's buried in the field. What is that thing that we value more than anything else that we want to be with, that we want to be around? The, the, the pearl of great price, sell everything so we can have this pearl. Found a treasure buried in a field, I sold everything, I gave up everything, every other uh, principle, every other uh, goal and dream and hope and desire. I gave them all up because this one was so much better than all the rest. See, that's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. Can you see there's a difference between that gospel and you either turn or you burn? There's a difference in those gospels. And we have so effectively used the turn or burn theology to to bring people into the church, but yet don't even have that great of a care for Jesus himself. Which is why a lot of the problems we have in the church are what they are. We came in under the wrong gospel. One of the greatest truths you can learn about false teaching and false doctrine is that just a shade off can change everything. In other words, some of the most dangerous teachings are not the things that outright reject Jesus, but just give a little different understanding of who Jesus is or what he's done. It takes us on a path that continues to move us away from who Jesus is. Can you imagine being in the presence of God without the ability to know him? Another thing John Milton said, another quote from Paradise Lost that is often quoted is, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. As if we are so comfortable with our darkness and we have so elevated ourselves into the place of God, I'd rather be in hell and be a God than to be in heaven and be a servant. You got a question? Mm. Yeah, I think you are dead on. Uh, if you're watching online, the question is, is if we truly could know Jesus, uh, then our hell not being able to be with him, or no, I'm paraphrasing deeply, um, would be hell in and of itself. That's exactly where I'm going. So thank you. You just wrapped up my sermon. Let me take you on another journey to get there. We're almost there. But you're right. I, I, I am with you. This is the idea of the treasure in the, in the field, the pearl of great price. It is the loss of that thing that is the greatest thing that could ever have been, and we had an opportunity and we missed it, is in and of itself. Is that not weeping and gnashing of teeth? Is that not a feeling of perpetual torture? Now, what makes that perpetual? We'll get to that in a minute. So we have this option. But if we're honest, some people are just very comfortable with darkness, and Scripture teaches this. I'm just comfortable with it. If I get to be the center of the story, I can deal with a little darkness. The problem is, is we live in a world that has become so comfortable with darkness, it's almost unbearable to live in this world, isn't it? That in and of itself could be a perpetual hell. Left to our own devices, we mess things up. I mean, I'd like to say look to our government. 
for how humanity is at its best. <laughs> right? We mess things up at our courts. What we do, it is what the original sin was. I'm going to define good and evil for myself. I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to what God says good and evil is. I want to define it. What I think is right, what I think is wrong. Can you imagine being in the presence of God without the ability to know God? Part of this death that it's talking about is not that you end, but this is an idea of total isolation. You are left 100% with yourself. And while there are some of us who would be okay with that for a moment, right? We're introverts. I could be okay being by myself for a little bit. But eternally, that has proved to be one of the most effective tortures in time of war is to isolate. You'll event, you need people. You were created for community. We see this when, when Jesus dies on the cross. And he says this, as he is dying, on the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemet sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus enters into hell, he is entering into hell, isolated and alone, separated from the Father. Because that is our understanding of what Jesus does, is he goes to whatever hell is, but he conquers it. And in his last statement here, he is saying, I am isolated. I am forsaken. I am cut off from the pearl of great price or the treasure that is above all other treasures. It is unbearable. Another thing to understand and to put this in perspective, and I think goes along with what you're saying as well, is that this idea that God somehow is not in hell. Do you know Scripture says God is in hell? Do you know that? Probably not. We get It kind of lives in the same place where we believe we're going to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that either. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? Jesus. Like, this is all going to happen in hell, in the presence of the angels and of Jesus. And that should throw a lot of our understandings of hell out the window right there. What is that? What? Is that like just like the initial indoctrinization until they say, okay, we're out of here. We're going to Club Med. Because one of the things we talked about last week, and we'll dive in a little bit deeper next week, is some of our understandings of heaven actually have nothing to do with God. And have everything to do with hoping that we're going to have every hope and dream we never realized on earth. That is not heaven either. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever received the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What if you could not know God even though you were in his presence eternally? 
Because hell seems to be that place in which the opportunity to know God ceases. What would that look like? All the time, seeing his love, grace, and mercy, his care, his beauty, wonder of who Jesus is, and yet we cannot know him. It's really hard for us to put that into words of what that would be like. So wouldn't it be easier to say something like, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment, eternal fire? Wouldn't it be easier to think of, of that if we weren't portraying, I don't really know what it would be like to be in the presence of Jesus and not be able to know him. We've never experienced that. We have no reference point for that. But we do have a reference point for a dump that's always burning things that really bad things happen in that place. I think that's what Milton and Dante were trying to do. I'm trying to get you to understand how bad that would be with the images of eternal physical torture. What if it was that we couldn't know him? Brian McLaren, another author I like, but many things I don't agree with him about, um, was one of the first people I ever read with this kind of mentality in uh, his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, back in the 80s and I mean 90s, 80s, 90s, sometimes back in there, a long time ago, who basically said, what if heaven and hell were the exact same place? The difference was in the people, not in the location. So that I'm in heaven, but I'm in a perpetual hell because I cannot know the one who which I should have chosen to know. Perhaps that's some of what Dante was saying when he, or Milton was saying when he said it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. There are going to be people in the same place that are not happy they're there. I don't know what that would look like because I think that would mess with my idea of heaven, right? Like if you're there and you're always like, oh, this is so bad. Like that doesn't feel like heaven to me. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like, but it does open that possibility does open that possibility. Here's what, I want to, here's what I want to wrap up with. And I'll be available for if you want to stay after and talk. I want to be very clear because one of the big pushbacks against hell is that how could a loving God allow something like this to happen? I think it's important that we have to say in any conversation about hell is that God does not desire for anyone to experience this. There are people that make us mad, and then they fall, and we're like, ha, 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 put that on rewind. I'm going to watch that over and over and over again. We call it bad karma. Love it. Those karma videos. I mean, how many times do you watch those karma videos? Be honest, a lot. Like, ha, 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 that guy who's walking across the street yelling at the guy and then walks into a light pole. Ha, 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 love it. Some people ascribe that to God this hell, I'm going to watch you burn, and oh, it's going to be great. Jesus and I are going to sit here with our popcorn. Look at that. That's how some people view God. God does not desire for anyone to experience hell. Second Peter uh, says this, the Lord is not slow to fill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Next one, uh, Jake, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if that was there and none of the words from Jesus about judgment were there, we could say maybe there's a universalist bent to the gospel if we only look at this first. But when we look at the other, it changes that. So one of the reasons I believe that there is a hell is the fact that we have an opportunity to choose how we respond to God. 
We're either going to know the love, the grace, the mercy, and I would add the beauty of God, or we're going to know the judgment of God. We choose. We choose. And the problem is if there is no hell, how can we claim that God is just? And if God is just, how can he allow people to break all the things he said not to do, promising uh, punishment and, and, and for on judgment and in order to um, instruct and encourage us to pursue his own characteristic of holiness and justice? How can he just ignore that? The problem with escapism mentality in heaven that we just, everything's okay and there's no judgment and everybody just goes to heaven. We just escape and then we get all our hopes and dreams we, we ever wanted, which is that escapism view of heaven. The problem is, is how, God then never truly deals with sin unless we take that universalist arm who says he did it for everybody, despite how they respond to him. But if there is no judgment, God is not just. If God is not just, how can we trust God? And if we cannot trust God, how can he possibly save us from anything? So it's one of the problems we have, and this is what I want to wrap up with. One of the problems we have with this is when we put hell on a pedestal and that is the way we present the gospel. This is, I mean, to be super simplistic, when I was a kid, I ate broccoli. Not because I wanted to, but because if I didn't, I got in trouble or I went hungry. I didn't get to eat anything else. So if you showed up at our dinner table at any time when broccoli's on the table, you would see me get a big helping and put it on my plate and I would eat it. And you could assume I like broccoli. But do you know what I gave up first when I moved out? I gave up broccoli. Because I didn't eat broccoli because I liked it. I ate it because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. It was older. I was older when my body didn't quite work the same way it did when I was 20. I thought, I need to eat me some more broccoli. I like it now. And now I eat broccoli because I like it and I like what it does for me. But I did not eat it as a kid that way. And the problem when we lead with hell and we push somebody towards God because they're trying to get away from hell does not mean they will ever actually know, care about, or love Jesus, which is the whole point of the gospel. Just like you could have at any dinner looked on me and thought I loved broccoli, you could look at any given person who is running away from hell and think they love Jesus and be mistaken. And this is one of the reasons I believe Jesus says that on that day people will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But look at all that we did in your name. Hell is a reality that we cannot ignore, however we cannot lead the gospel with it, because the point God's trying to make is not, hey, you don't want to be in that place. You want to be up here with me. The point is, I'm the treasure. You can know me. I want to know you. And when the gospel changes into something else, it ceases to be the gospel that Jesus died for. That may feel 
like I'm mincing words or I may feel like it's just a, an issue of semantics or perception, but it is the very difference between life and death. So as we kind of wrap this up, I'm not going to do that last slide, Jake, but in the end of the day, hell gives us the option to choose how we respond to God. Will it be out of love? Will it be a response to his love, his mercy, his grace, and his beauty? Or will it be a response to his judgment? We choose. Next week is going to be, I hope, a whole lot more feeling good. We're talking about heaven. But what does it look like to understand what the Bible really says about heaven? Would you pray with me? Father, God, I pray that you would make clear to us what you want us to know, what you want us to see. I do, I am so grateful and thankful that not only are you beautiful, but that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us and that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could be saved from our sins. We could know you for all eternity. I pray that you would open our eyes to your word so that we do not just embrace what others have said about it, but we would embrace what you have said to us through it. Give us discernment to understand the difference between what is figurative and what is literal. God, I pray that you would lead us as a a faith community and in our community to help others to see that you are the greatest treasure. We have the opportunity to know you now. Pray that you would reveal our inner motives. How are we actually, are we responding to you or are we responding to hell? I pray that we are responding to you. We are seeking you. And we are loving you. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.